Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They say you only roast the ones you love. Justin Bieber, everybody. Seems like only yesterday you were discovered on YouTube. Time flies when you're a piece of shit. <laughs> no, Justin's fans are called believers because these days it's considered politically incorrect to use the term retards. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was this week's guest, Natasha Legero, giving it to Justin Bieber at the Comedy Central Roast in 2015. Natasha's husband and comedy collaborator, Moshe Kasher, has said that she has the, quote, most well-defined persona in modern comedy. And it's true. From her early appearances roasting D-list celebrities on Chelsea Lately, to her most recent performance roasting couples on her Honeymoon Netflix special with Moshe, Natasha never holds back. Now, she's putting those skills to use by roasting houses. Along with her friend Dan Levy, she's co-hosting the Discovery Plus series House Hunters, Comedians on Couches Unfiltered, where they invite comics like Seth Rogen, John Mulaney, and J.B. Smoove to openly mock that HGTV reality show. On this episode, Natasha joined me from an Airstream trailer in the woods of Northern California to talk about how quarantine has changed the type of comedy she wants to make, her own strange brush with cancel culture, and a lot more. So here's me with Natasha Legero. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm just a big fan of your of your comedy, and um, and it's great to have you on the show. Uh, we set this up around House Hunters, but I wanted to actually start with Yearly Departed, which I really enjoyed your your performance on that special at the end of last year. How did you decide that what you wanted to talk about? For that, because you really you talked about you know the experience of of having children during during quarantine, which was a, a unique um, thing this past year. Ironically, this would be a perfect time to have a child because, like, <laughs> for the first six months to a year, they're just this like blob in your hands, so you can't really leave. And if you're a mom, you know, breastfeeding is really made for you to be staying at home. Like the few times I would go out when I had my baby you know, it would just be like the pressure would build up. I had to like leak my tits in like a <laughs> sink at the arc light while I was watching the Mr. Rogers documentary. Like, that sounds you know, it's, it... <laughs> but I was like, Oh, like, this is why they invented formula because women like <laughs> literally can't leave your house unless you want to pump. And like pumping to me was like, not really an option. I just really hated it. So but anyway, that's not your question. So, oh, so I was going to say, ironically, this would be a good time to have a baby. Um, but yeah, I actually didn't write the show. I helped with my part, but it was Bess Kalb is a really talented writer. And, you know, they, she and Rachel Brosnahan had like, you know, put together this whole eulogy, eulogizing all different things. And so I guess the baby one they thought of me for, but um, <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, they had already written a really funny script and they had cast so many great people. Um, so I was really excited to be able to come on to that and, you know, make it my own because I, I did have like, I can't believe it's been a year <laughs> of this quarantine, but I did have a lot of material that I hadn't really been able to use anywhere. So that was helpful. Yeah, I was wondering about that because this was not really, that show was not really stand-up, but it was kind of like stand-up. And I imagine that, yeah, you you haven't been able to perform live. So was that kind of the first time you had performed in that way in a long time? Totally. And it was still very odd, like nothing I'd ever experienced because, you know, we were all in pods, so we weren't really there together, even though that's kind of what gives it that artistic look, you know, when you watch. I had no idea watching it at first that that it was that you guys were not all in the same room together. So they did a very good job of of making it uh, making it seem like you were. Yeah, that was so cool. Um, We were just kind of in these little pods at different times of day. And then I think they green screened us in. Um, I happened to be able to watch, I think I got to watch all of Sarah's eulogy. So I was in a pod, they were getting reactions from me with my own little sound person and my own little shield. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it was normal, but yes, it was really fun to be able to just perform again. And I never really thought of it like that because I've done a few Zoom shows since then, but that was really the last time I, I got to feel like a performance. I am here today to say goodbye to having any more children. Goodbye to the painful, messy, psychologically scarring event known as having sex with my husband. Mm. No one should be having any more kids. And I say this as someone who loves a gender reveal party and guessing what natural catastrophe it will cause. Mm. By about April of this year, I was ready to reach down there tie my own tubes and double knot that shit. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Are you missing stand-up? I'm missing going on stage and killing. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. Doesn't happen every time. Exactly. So, you know, I miss the good parts, the bad parts, the travel, being stuck on an airplane, waking up at 5 a.m., having to, like, be driven somewhere by a college student explaining to you the rules of, there's the performance, um, you know, none of that is fun, but like once you're there and you're killing and you know, that's a really enviable experience, I guess. But I, you know, especially with a kid, it's like, I don't know if men think this through because there's so many male comics who have kids, but like, you know, they're on the road. You could almost tell when a male comic had a kid because all of a sudden you'd go to their website and they were booked solid (laughs) for like the next year and a half. Whereas like, you know, they want to get out of the fucking house. There's a, there's a woman there with, with maybe a nanny helping and a bunch of kids, but like for a a mom to have a stand-up career, it's, it's uniquely challenging and I'm not saying people can't do it, but it definitely is becomes stand-up becomes way less appealing for me because blinging her is like I've done that by myself a few times and that was very challenging you know just they I would I would get on the airplane and I literally part of my plan was to ask someone for help (laughs) (laughs) so like I I had like you know a baby bassinet and then I would pay for her to have a seat so I could have like the whole row and then 
So then she would get two carry-ons so I could bring all her baby stuff. And then I would have my carry-ons. And so like part of my plan was to just beg whoever I could find to help me get from like my seat to the front of the plane. And so, you know, a, a lot of it was just kind of winging it. And then of course you get to the, to the hotel. Now who's going to help you watch the baby? So like I would research sitters, friends of friends, people I know I could hopefully trust while I was there. And, you know, my mom came a few times and that's always like ideal because you trust your family, obviously. But like the whole situation just feels hard. It's, it can be sketchy. Um, you know, I brought the kid backstage before when she was like sleeping to try to do my set. Not necessarily the best place for a baby backstage at a comedy club. Exactly. So when people ask me like about stand up, I'm like, it just with the kid, it's maybe in like an ideal, ideal circumstance. You're only doing summers when they're not in school and they're old enough to like be safe. And you have like a family member traveling with you, possibly on a tour bus. I mean, so many things have to align to make it ideal. Whereas like when I would go, I'm traveling light. I can take any flight, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I can it, it, go out to eat by myself. I don't have to think about, I can just think about my set. I don't have to think about like, you know, I, I hired this babysitter that came recommended when we were in some city. And like, when we left Moshe, my husband was like, oh, you know, um, you know, on her wrist, she's like a cutter. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? How do you know that? And he's like, well, I could see all the scars oh on God. her wrist. And I was like, Wait, what? Well, first of all, why don't you tell me that we just left our baby with a cutter? Like, he's like, well, she's probably like a former cutter. And I'm just like, all right, well, I just, you know, nothing against cutters. But. <laughs> so to answer your question, to answer your question, no, I don't miss stand up with a baby. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, this past year maybe has been a, a relief. It's like there's no pressure to be out doing stand up because nobody's do- nobody can do it. So true. And then I've been able to like, I'm working on a book and I'm working on a few other shows and um you know we have this house hunters show that we were able to film completely from our couch so you know it's it's stuff like that has been i complain about technology all the time and i am definitely a luddite in my heart but i don't know something about you know even us being able to do this while i'm in the woods and i didn't have to like drive 45 minutes come there get mic'd you know, right, exactly. if this works, if this works as well, it actually gives me more time to have with my family, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, the, the House Hunters show seems like it, it must be ideal for just uh, doing it literally from home, from your couch. Is this sort of like the uh, the easiest project you've ever done? My husband said, not only is it the easiest project you've ever done, it's the easiest project I've ever heard of in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what appealed to you about doing it? Well, you know, everyone thinks that, oh, it's easy, but it's like, well, yeah, it's easy for someone who's been working in comedy for 25 years because like, you know, we have all these connections and we have all these relationships, you know, it's not like anyone can step in and just like talk to John Mulaney or Chelsea Peretti or Ali Wong. Like we're all old friends and we all share this like fascination, you know, with house hunters. And not only that, like, you know, we're just kind of like shit talkers by nature. So finding a new thing to talk shit about for us comics, talk shit, you know, make jokes, whatever, roast, it's just always fun. And I think House Hunters is really this untapped market. 
because a lot of us watch it already. And so to be able to just watch it and then with the launch of Discovery Plus, what's so cool about it is it doesn't, that's what we call it House Hunters comedians on couches unfiltered because they don't edit us in the same way that something like an HGTV, which is already sort of established. So the whole beauty of Discovery Plus is that we can kind of, you know, be a little more like we could in a comedy club. Like there's much less editing. Yeah. I have to say watching the show, I was surprised how uh, unfiltered it is. And you guys really do, uh, (laughs) you know, go after these people on the show. And it is sort of like, I mean, you are still associated with the show. It's still the same like company, right? That produces both. So has there been any instances of them, you know, saying, hey, why don't you dial it back a little bit? Or is that or they really do give you free reign to say whatever you want? Well, I mean, I have a feeling that when these people agree to do House Hunters, they signed away any rights that they have to claim. (laughs) So um, I don't think the network cares as long as, you know, they're not being bothered and people are loving it. I mean, definitely when I go to my Instagram, I'm like, wow, this is like people like this show more than anything I've done. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I think like this market, I don't think people really thought like, oh, we can make fun of, I mean, there are like 600,000 episodes of House Hunters. I don't know if you, there are so many. So I, I think that like, you know, like Seth Rogen, he's on the show. He had watched, he's just has, he had watched everyone we showed him. Like, I think he's just like a fan. Seth, you actually watch House Hunters. I do. And I guess this is my only way to be on it without having to buy a house in Michigan somewhere. So this is a lovely... (laughs) Well, uh, thanks so much for being here. No problem. This is a, you know, I was literally, I left my bedroom where I was watching House Hunters to come do this. So it's, <laughs> uh, no, I love HGTV and I do watch it all the time. House Hunters, I like. House Hunters International, if I'm feeling a little continental, I guess. Um, yeah, it'd be like guessing how many jelly beans are in that jar. Like, how many episodes of House Hunters are there? Is there yeah. 20,000? Is there 25? Like, I truly. <laughs> I honestly have no, it seems like something that's just always been there forever. So I'd love to kind of talk a little bit about the early part of your comedy career and sort of how you got into this. Um, You started acting before you started comedy. Is that right? Well, (laughs) I guess like I was a child actor. In quotes. (laughs) Not star. I wasn't a child star. I was a child actor. So I come from a place called Rockford, Illinois, and there was a regional theater there. And I don't know if you know what a regional theater is, but it's like half amateur townspeople and then half like professional people from Chicago whose careers were kind of like on the fritz. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, okay, I guess I can get paid equity minimum and go to this like regional theater. But yeah, so I was like exposed to theater and being in plays and being in long running plays you know, each play would have like a month of rehearsal and then 35 performance dates. And I would have to leave for matinees from my, you know, school that I went to. So it was like, you know, somewhat of a professional schedule. And, you know, I was just like very connected to acting and theater. And I spent like most of my, from 10 years old to high school acting in this theater as I went to school. So, you know, if I was in New York, I would have been Natalie Portman, but yeah. I was in Illinois. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I was an actress and then I moved to New York to do acting. I thought I should get accepted into Juilliard. I did not. Um, and I just kind of plugged away and worked as a waitress for way too long and went to acting cons- conservatory in New York, Stella Adler, as I like finished getting my degree from the City University of New York, 
um, because I didn't really have money. So I had to pay for it all myself. And then I finally had the good sense to leave New York and move to California, to Los Angeles. And that's in LA where I like, someone said, you should do stand up comedy. And I was like, what? Why? <laughs> <laughs> but then I saw some girl I knew do it from acting school who was like a ballet teacher or something. But she just like was talking about her experiences in in LA coming from New York. And I was like, oh, you could just like talk about stuff. Like I thought, oh, just a stand-up comedian was like Rodney Dangerfield. I would have to have like a hook and I'd have to say like, uh, you know, like, or Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> or like a man in a suit with like a catchphrase. Like I didn't know about female comedians. I didn't really, I was never exposed to it. So when I saw this girl at the comedy store, I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. So I took a class and we had a show and I invited a few people and it was like still the best experience doing stand-up I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> that first time was the best? Yeah, I'm still trying to get that back because I didn't know people were going to be laughing. And, you know, those are called bringer shows. So they're like extremely warm and inviting. And it was in the belly room at the comedy store, which Mitzi Shore apparently created for women, you know, like the womb, like it's the belly room. It's really, you know, the sound travels really well and you can like feel like you're killing. So, you know, this packed room of, you know, friends and family of all the people who took this class, it was just like I had prepared this set and I had locked myself up in my room. I had like a tiny studio apartment and I had locked myself up in there the entire weekend and I was like, okay, it's on Monday, this show. I am going to like write this set and I wrote the set. And I just didn't think, I just wanted to get through it. So I just didn't think people would respond. And so like when people started laughing, I remember it was like a visceral, almost out of body experience where it felt like waves on, you know, like coming over me. But then, wait, don't get too excited. Cause then I remembered <laughs> my hairdresser had given me like a half of an Ambien or something. And I had never really taken a pill because I was so nervous. I couldn't imagine myself doing this in front of all the people. So I think that's part of why I had that like really like like physical sensation while I was performing. <laughs> I've never taken Ambien again. But um but yeah, so so that's pretty much how I started. And then just to finish the story, I had such an amazing experience and then I was like, "Oh my god, I have to do this." And then I did my second show a few days later and it was like the biggest bomb of my life. You know, I was like so cocky. I was like, you know, sure that I was going to get like you know, I had, I had planned for the end of my set to tell them my next date, like, you know, and then <laughs> December 18th, I'll be at the laugh factory. Like, yeah. As the applause like, dies was, down. Yeah, but it was just like a bomb. I was trying to do improv. It wasn't working. It was like at a bar that people were mad. I think I was like pissing off some sailors. I said it smelled. <laughs> I'm, I was just like bad. And then I remember coming home to that same studio apartment and laying down on my bed and just being like, okay, this is going to take a while. And like, just sort of processing that, realizing that. And then I started like keeping a journal and like making sure I went up seven times a week and like making sure I went up and like what I was like completely immersed in comedy. I would like go out every night and like get stage time and make friends with other comics. And like, and it was like such a, an amazing scene of people. I mean, I'm still friends with so many of those people I knew then, like Jen Kirkman and Anthony Jeselnik 
and Sarah Silverman, Mark Marin, Zach Galifianakis, those people were all kind of like uh, one tier above us, but like me, Morgan Murphy, Anthony Jeselnik, Jen Kirkman, we were all kind of start, Kyle Kinane, I'm trying to think of who was there, but like we were all kind of like starting out. Some of them might have started, I, I think it was all like at the same time. Tig was like, someone who was like a class above me. And those are the people we would start watching and being and like, being like, wow, like these people are so amazing. And it was just such a cool time. And then it morphed into something else. And then there was like a wave of people that came from San Francisco, like my husband, Moshe and Chelsea Peretti. And, you know, it's just all of a sudden you'd start like having all of these, these comics. And I don't know, it was just like a really great time. And it just kept really kept growing and, and changing. And, you know, there was M bar and the whole alternative scene. And then we had UCB and then the coronavirus came and ruined it all. Oh yeah. (laughs) And a few years later, it all went away. So I was reading an interview that uh, you did with Moshe Kasher, and he said that you have, in his mind, the most well-defined persona in modern comedy. That was the quote. He's never seen Sebastian. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sebastian Maniscalco, yeah. So is that something that really was there from the beginning for you or something that evolved? Or how do you think when you look back at those, you know, first years that you were doing it, do you feel like that persona was there or a seed of it? Well, definitely it was, it there was a seed of it there because my instinct, well, first of all, I used to always like cut up dresses and, you know, I was always wearing like vintage fancy dresses in college. And, you know, that was just like, I, I always wanted to, I was just always interested and drawn to fashion and looking different than everybody. And then I remember I wanted to wear one of my like ensembles for my first time on stage but then I had the really good sense I was like what if what if I bomb I don't want to bomb in like a costume (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's more embarrassing yeah so I remember wearing jeans and like a really casual you know still kind of fancy-ish but like you know a casual shirt but yeah so then I remember I kind of worked at stand-up for like a few years and then my friend Ethan Ethan Gold, he's a very talented musician. He was like, he came and saw me and he's like, why don't you start wearing your, you know, your more fancy clothes? Cause maybe you could like get away with saying more. He's like, if you just kind of are just dressed in jeans, you're just like some boring Silver Lake hipster girl. Like, what if you like actually put on the clothes, you know? And, and then I, I took his advice and then I was like, oh, this kind of works. Cause it's like, I'm almost being more, you know, cause, cause your stand up persona can be like your evil twin or like an exaggerated version of you or maybe a better version of you. I don't know what it is. Or I mean, I think it's more fun if it's a slightly more selfish, worse version of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it just kind of helped me be able to express these ideas that like, I didn't exactly stand behind, but um, I don't know. I just feel like stand up for me was always changing and you know, at the time there was like a certain thing that was, that was popular and, you know, references were always really big at UCB. Like, you know, everything just, and then like, if you'd go to the laugh factory, people were always like, would respond more to act outs and like physical comedy. So there was just so much to learn and absorb that it was such a great way to test things out. You know, you could wear a costume at the laugh factory one night and do whatever you wanted at UCB, go on stage with, a, with someone and just banter and do improv another night. And I just feel like that, that's one of the beauties of stand-up is that 
it's you're traveling so light you know you're not with a band and a set list and like equipment you've got to like bring it's like you literally show up by yourself with your bag they set up the mic and so i don't know i just feel like the it's just kind of endless what you can do with it coming up natasha opens up about her terrifying experience on the comedy central roast of James Franco and Justin Bieber, and why she won't be doing any more of them. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One thing that I wanted to talk about, um, I think the, the time when I really first took notice of you in a, in a big way was at the roast, starting with the the James Franco roast, uh, which I believe was 2013. And then you did the Justin Bieber one a couple years later. Um, was that a big, was that a big thing for you to, to do those? Had you been writing for them before you were actually on them or were you just when you were on it the first time? No, I had never written for them. It was a huge thing for me to do. It was like one of those things that, you know, extremely intimidating and, you know, cause it's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go make fun of A-list celebrities I've never met before, you know, like that. But I I think that, you know, picking people, all the people, it was like everyone could take a joke. And but yeah, it was it was extremely intimidating. And it's one of those things in your career where you're like, okay, I'm afraid of this. I'm I'm terrified. I'm going to try to rise to the occasion and be so prepared that, you know, it's, it's like the same thing that happened when I did the tonight show for the first time, I was like, so scared to do stand up. And it, it sounds very cliche, but it's really about like preparation. You know, are you ready? Because like, you know, you can do it in like some world, but it's like, you just have to, I think just physically, like if there's any comedians listening or young comedians listening, it's like, you can physically just like do it a million times, you know, like, you just have to like be so prepared. And every time there's a, a point where you're like, well, I could go do another set here or I could just stay home. I'll be fine. You know, like always go do that extra set. Always go try out that extra joke. Always, you know, for something like that, that's the only way I've ever been able to get through it just by like doing the work so hardcore. Yeah. I mean, with the roast, there's like, there's two levels to it too. Cause there's one, you had to come in and, and make fun of these A-list celebrities that you didn't necessarily know. And two, especially at that first one, you're kind of coming in as the, the newcomer, which seems like they have, there's kind of like roles at these roasts. Like there's like the weird out of left field person, like, you know, Martha Stewart is not a comedian. And then, but there's always sort of like a young 
sort of more up and coming comedian who's coming in there that maybe not everyone knows and you have to sort of play that role. So what was it like for you to to be roasted as well in that, especially in that first one? Well, I was terrified and I was like, okay, so I'm a woman, so I'm either going to be a whore or old. And so I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm not 20, but there was like other people who were older than me. <laughs> so well, that was, was like, the year. There was a lot of controversy right around Sarah Silverman got all these old jokes because she was what, like 42 or something? I guess I, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, and Sarah was like so funny and looked so amazing. And I just somehow escaped that, <laughs> you know, like, because nobody wants to go up there and have men say that your, you know, pubic hair has spider, whatever they said. I mean, they didn't say that about Sarah. I'm just saying that's, I was like imagining, I think there was someone else. I don't remember, but they, they can just be so mean to women. And I somehow like escaped that. And then I was offered the roast a third time and I had just had a baby. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm mentally prepared for like jokes about how my kid would have down syndrome because I'm such a old hag, you know, like you kind of like play through the worst scenario. And so I was like, you know what? I think I've done it. It was fun. You decided it was a conscious decision to say you don't want to do any more of these or would you go back later? Do you think? I feel like I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, I did my two. I, I escaped uh, relatively unscathed. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is all in fun. But again, the old roasts were like more like friends ribbing each other. That's why it's like, okay, now uh, Jonah Hill, you know, I, I didn't know these people. So... Everything I know about being a whore in the entertainment industry, I learned from this next roaster. Of course, I'm talking about you, Natasha Leggero. Um, you guys may have seen her on Reno 911 as a whore on drugs. If you didn't see that, you may have seen her neighbors as a whore on drugs. Um, everybody, I want you to pull out some Purell for Natasha Leggero right now. And you look like someone put 50 cent in the dryer. <laughs> there is a lot of star power up here. These men combined have made millions in child support payments. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch them because they kind of, they exist in this world outside of what everyone, you know, likes to talk about with cancel culture and all this, like, you know, things you can't say, because it really is anything goes, I think. There's not a lot of holding back at these roasts, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of fallout either. I mean... I think comedy is evolving and changing. And what was hilarious 10 years ago, I think a lot has happened and are hilarious, you know, feeling like, I, I don't know. I just feel like I have to feel that we're like growing in compassion as a culture and as a species and art will reflect that. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I didn't think about when I would just say things ironically two decades ago that now you're like, oh, yeah, like, and, and look at what's happened. Like, gay people have more rights. And, you know, I, I think there's like a whole even like mock racism that was popular 20 years ago is like, people are like, wait, why would I say that? Even, even though it's just to be funny, like, that's not funny. That hurts people. And, you know, I, I just think that 
it takes, maybe it takes a long time and it takes movements like this to realize it. And anyway, the point is I don't want to do any more roasts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have sort of had your own, uh, you know, sort of mini experiences with, uh, with cancel culture though, right? I mean, the, the SpaghettiOs Pearl Harbor thing at New Year's Eve was kind of a, a story for a while. All right, let's move on. SpaghettiOs on Pearl Harbor Day, they sent out a tweet featuring their mascot holding an American flag, asking people to, quote, take a moment to remember hashtag Pearl Harbor with us. It offended a lot of people, corporations glomming on to you know, sentimental American historic traditions, seemingly looking for people in business, and it wasn't, it wasn't good, but you were offended for another reason. I'm offended because they're referring to SpaghettiOs as pasta. <laughs> I mean, it sucks that the only survivors of Pearl Harbor are being and I think you handled that really well in, in the way that you didn't, you know, sort of reflexively apologize for what was really a kind of a silly joke, even though it created some outrage. I mean, what did you learn from that experience that you have carried forward? I mean, that just felt like old Republicans kind of lashing out or something. <laughs> and that was pre-cancel culture. I feel like getting death threats from old people with guns because you made a joke about like how men have to gum their SpaghettiOs. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, You couldn't have seen that say? coming. <laughs> what can you say? But uh, I don't know. I, I do feel like comedy is, you know, think about, think about art, it, you know, like actual visual art. It, it doesn't stay the same. Like, you know, before there could be cubism there everything there's like different genres and it develops and one leads to another and I mean I, I don't know why comedy wouldn't be any different that we wouldn't all be like changing and evolving and that's why I honestly love house hunters because it's like okay because I was on Chelsea lately for like a decade and it's like it was so you know that was what the current culture was making fun of celebrities making fun of these people you've never met maybe they're overweight whatever it is like you know making fun of people and it was like every day we would just be making fun of these dumb celebrities. And now it's like, I don't really feel like doing that anymore. And I don't really see that happening around me as much, you know? And that's what's fun, like, about house hunters. It's like, okay, well, let's make fun of houses for a while. <laughs> <laughs> do, you think getting, do you think getting more celebrity yourself makes you think differently about making fun of celebrities? No, but m getting more people who just, like, will just go onto your Instagram and be like, you're an ugly old bitch, die, or whatever. It's like, oh, like, what well, did I used to do that? So, like, <laughs> Louis Kardashian? Like, is that kind of what I was... I mean, I would, I would have said something more clever. But, like, I guess it's like, well... I don't know. I, yeah, I, I just feel like that was really big for a while. And now we're like moving into new things. And I don't even know what we're moving into. Maybe we're moving into like a world of like more absurdity, which I think would be really fun because I love absurdity. I mean, my, my favorite thing is like dark comedy. And I, I think that like, who knows where we're going. And, and I, I'm excited. Your your last special, your last big special with with Moshe, the honeymoon stand up special. Um, you were pregnant during that one, so you haven't had a special. As, you know, once you've had a kid, do you feel like that's going to be a big, you know, thing that you want to talk about on stage, or do you feel like you want to kind of keep that part of your life separate, or or how do you think about that? Well, as a comedian, like all you really have are your experiences, and that's why it was so stimulating for me to to and fulfilling really to, to be able to do a stand-up special pregnant because like finally something's happening to you that you can <laughs> talk about 
you're like, you know, you feel like this like victim almost and like you need to get it out. Um, and also in terms of like talking about my family life and my private life, like when I met Moshe, I like wanted to do a joke about something that happened to us. And I remember I came to him and I was like, do you mind if I like talk about this on stage? I hope it's not like, you know, too personal for you. And he was like, oh, you never have to ask me that. He's like, you can make fun of me any, you can say anything you want. And that's why I married him. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, that must have felt good. I mean, that, that really shows that you guys are a good match. And you, did you feel the same way about him? Did you give him carte blanche to say anything about you? To be honest, no. Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure he said something where I'm like, could you maybe not say that? But he, I mean, that confidence that he had where, and I've definitely had other boyfriends who are comedians who were like, please don't say this. Please don't say that. Please don't, you know what I mean? So it's like, then you start to feel sort of like neutered in a way because you want to be able, now I suppose my daughter will grow up and be like, please stop talking about me on stage. <laughs> yeah. Do you think she's going to say, no, say whatever you want about me. It's fine. I doubt it. I doubt it. I'd have to talk to more comedians with kids and find out what happens because there's got to be a time when you like want to talk about your 10 year old, but your 10 year old kind of can like, you know, hear it on, on YouTube or something. I don't know. I love the, um, the Ray Romano's most recent special. He's like talking about his teenage kids the whole time. And then, and I was just spending the whole time thinking like, what do they think of this? Cause it's like insane. And then of course, at the end, he shows that they're all in the audience and, and that they all are laughing and get along. It seems in the special. So hopefully that's true. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Hopefully I've made a transition out of stand up by the time my child. <laughs> yeah. You want to be done by then? No, that's not true. I, I do like it. And I, but I especially like it when I can like travel with Moshe. So it's like, then all of a sudden it's like, we're going to cool cities it's easier to watch the kid. We can switch off even if we have to bring her backstage and it makes everything way more doable. Yeah. That's why you like touring together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it seems it's a good situation. As you were saying, easier than, uh, than trying to do it by yourself for sure. Yeah. I don't think I ever want to do that again. <laughs> Has this experience of being off the road for a year, you know, made you think about the types of projects or things that you want to do differently, whether it's, you know, this, this house hunter show or, or other things, other ideas that have come up of, of sort of things that you might want to do in this, in this new world where you can't, you know, perform in front of hundreds of people? Well, I think that, um, you know, having a family, having a new family, and then, you know, one of the really amazing things that the coronavirus has given families is that we're like spending way more. I mean, it's totally, there's so many different tiers, like single people have a totally different. They also are like artistically more free because they can like learn an instrument or write the, write a book or whatever. They have so much free time. Whereas like people who are in families, they don't have anywhere near as much free time creatively to like think and, you know, manifest like new opportunities for themselves because you're like, your, your mind, at least mine anyway, is like so focused on family and safety and health and how you're going to stimulate this child who's stuck at home. And so I, I think that the result of that for someone in a family has just been like becoming extremely close to your family and your kids in a way that I definitely wouldn't have gotten. I mean, I had a nanny 50 hours a week helping me so I could like work. So like I'm doing all that now. So I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I'm closer to my daughter in a way and I don't want to leave for like to go do something, even a movie necessarily. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I think that lifestyle for all of us is going to be more of a consideration. And I think that 
there's going to be a lot of movement in that way because like, look right now I'm out in the woods and we're zooming because Elon Musk or someone made it so that we can put a (laughs) satellite in the redwood. And there's like five people zooming on this property right now. So like, if, if that can happen, why would you live in a place that like you can only afford a, you know, a small apartment with no outdoor space? Yeah. I love it that everyone can live wherever they want now. And it's, it's great. Yeah. So it's, it's more of like, I think lifestyle should, should definitely be a consideration because we only have so much time and what do you want to spend your time doing? Yeah. So we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians about other comedians who, who really have made you laugh in your life. And what I would love to hear from you, if you can, is, is someone sort of someone who came before you, who you love and influenced you. And then maybe someone who's, who's coming up after you, who you think is really exciting. I would say the person who came before me, probably Tig Notaro, like she would take me on the road and I just feel like I learned so much from her. Like she really had no rules and I've never seen anyone just like talk to the crowd for like her entire set if she wanted to and have it be hilarious. Like physically, she just had her her own, because it's funny because I would describe Tig as a very physical comedian, but in a way that's like her physicality is hilarious but she's not like fucking the stool like physical comedy like think but like you know i think she really taught me like what is your physicality that's true to you and like what are you going to do and she would walk so deliberate and so slow and then like find a mic stand and move it and like she just had this whole funny orchestration of like what she would do and it was so true to herself you know growing growing up but like you know going on the road with her and and really like being able to be around that and experience that firsthand night after night you know i think it really influenced me it, it reminds me too of something that bobby lee told me when i first started comedy he was like try to be funny before you say hello <laughs> so i was like oh so i'm like coming on stage as like this what am i going to do you know and then i started doing this thing where like i'm really i mean it's not doesn't sound funny but like you know like moving the mic because I'm so small and then it falls. And then I just am like trying to get myself together and like, you know, experimenting with like, how can I be funny even when I'm not talking? And I think that that, that like really helped me because it's not just about the jokes. It's about like the spirit of it. Yeah. Great comedians are, are funny even when they're not talking, I think is, is totally true. Okay, cool. <laughs> I didn't know that quote. And someone I, who was in Dearly Departed, who I really love is Patty Harrison. She's like always making me laugh on, on Twitter. I don't know what her point of view is exactly. But <laughs> just always making me laugh. It's so funny. You should follow her. And she opened for us in Brooklyn and she just does, that's more in the absurd level too. She's always like doing some sort of performance and, you know, like. Yeah. Very surprising. Very, you don't know what's, what she's going to do. Yeah. Very surprising. Things are coming out of left field and like whatever that genre is of comedy, I'm like very intrigued. I don't know that it's naturally me, but I certainly enjoy it and want to be inspired by it. Yeah. Well, I was, I'll say we, we had Tig on this podcast last year and she's one of my favorites, but we definitely need uh, Patty Harrison on soon. So hopefully we'll, we'll talk to her, but it was such a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for doing this and enjoy the woods. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for being so nice. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you so much to Natasha Legero for being my guest on this week's show. 
House Hunters, Comedians on Couches Unfiltered is now available to stream on Discovery Plus with new episodes available on February 17th. You can also subscribe to Natasha and Moshe Kasher's Endless Honeymoon Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.